0: As we continue to grow and we're seeing God's hand at work, um, we've got a a class that has started and um, it's a a young minister's class. These are uh, people who have expressed a desire to me and and we've sat down and talked about it that they believe that God has called them to a a ministry and while we know preaching and pulpit ministry is not the the the, the pinnacle of ministry, it is an aspect of it And so we've got young people We also have some of those that uh, are not necessarily a young person uh, You heard Brother Justin Lowe a few weeks ago while I was out of town And while I didn't get to hear it all, I heard he did a phenomenal job And I'm thankful for our student pastor and what he does And um, he is going for his minister's license this year and that's an exciting milestone, and I'm so proud of them. And also, Brother Jonathan Hera is going to be going for his minister's license uh, here as well. They they meet the Missouri District Board coming up uh, in in April, I believe. And I don't do this because this is not the only reason I want these gentlemen to preach. I appreciate their ministry, but uh, one of the things that 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 we want to do is to. Uh, give them time behind the pulpit to preach to uh, share what God has given them and there's some preaching requirements that is needed for that as well and we want brother Jonathan to come uh, he uh, has preached here behind this pulpit before and I've appreciated that appreciate his family uh, uh, sister Ashley is teaches Sunday school downstairs and I every once in a while I'll quiz the kids and uh, they they retain what she teaches. And I'm thankful for this family. Brother Jonathan, I want you to come and preach the word of God to the Lighthouse. God bless you.
1: Thank you, Pastor. This never gets less daunting. I think this is the fourth time that I preach here, and it's actually a year, right, a month from the first time I preached here, and it's just as stressful and just as nerving as the first time, I assure you. Uh... But I appreciate the opportunity. Um, A few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Italy. It was like a dream vacation. We were spending 10 days in Italy. And part of that, you know, we were visiting all the major cities. And about halfway through, we went to Venice. And everybody loves Venice. Venice, truthfully, wasn't my favorite part of Italy. Let me elaborate. Well... Most of the trip was, was set up between guided and unguided, guided and unguided days. And the way that Venice was set up, kind of backwards from the rest of it, we actually started with an unguided day. So we didn't know what we were doing in Venice. But the very, very first thing we did is we got out of our hotel room, we got on a bus, and we went to a dock, and we got on a boat, and they drove us. Drove? Sailed? I don't know. I don't boat. Um, they sailed us around... The, the city, essentially. So if, if you've never seen Venice on a map or if you're not familiar with it, there's about a two-mile bridge that goes into Venice off of the mainland. It's about two miles off the mainland. And then on the opposite side of it, if you've ever seen pictures of Venice, what you're most familiar with is St. Marco Square, and that's on the east side of the city. So we rode, boated, sailed, whatever, around the city and we landed in St. Marco Square where we were greeted by our tour guide this was the only interaction we had with him that entire day and he told us you know today's your day you explore the city and he recommended something he recommended getting lost okay um, we had he gave us two he gave he, he told us you should get lost But then you should also, at 9.30 p.m. is when the buses will be at the west side of the island, or islands. Actually, Venice is 118 islands that are all compacted together. It's not just one big island. But at the west side of that, next to that big two-mile bridge, the buses will be there at 9.30 at night. So what you do is you just go and get lost. Just get lost, and everything will be fine, because when you're lost, you just know you head west, if you just gradually head west all day, it's only about a two-hour, really, walk from one side of the city to the other. So if you just head west throughout the day, you'll eventually get there. Just make sure you get there at 9.30. So we did that. We made a couple turns, and all of a sudden, we are lost in the middle of a foreign land (laughs) where nobody speaks our language. Uh, And we progressed through the day, and, you know, we had two expensive meals at too expensive places, getting fresh seafood from the Mediterranean, and I bought a too expensive rose from a random peddler on the road, and we bought two expensive, authentic Italian uh, souvenirs that were made in China, probably, and we eventually, throughout the course of the day, we eventually got to that bus station at 9.30 at night, and everything was fine. Except then I realized they didn't pay enough attention earlier in the day. Because it was a bus depot. There were lots of buses, not just one bus. And I didn't know what bus we were supposed to be on. And Ashley wasn't 100% sure on what bus we were supposed to be on either. And and we both had our own opinions. (laughs) And so we... On each top of the, each of the bus, they had, in, a, in Italian, not in English, they had city names and street names and all this sort of stuff. And, and we were reading these. Okay, well, let's find, let's find where we were. And I saw the name of the hotel on one of these banners. And I thought, this is the bus. This is it. This is where we're supposed to be. Ashley disagreed. And we proceeded to get on the bus that I knew was the right bus. And uh, we took off a few minutes later, and it was when we were driving down that two-mile bridge that I had this feeling, I think I made a bad decision. I'm not even going to say anything, but I think I might have made a bad decision. And this is bus is packed, and we drive for 15 minutes, and people are getting off and getting off, and... At that point I, I'm thinking I, we, we definitely made a wrong decision. And then people start getting on, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's backwards. We were I mean from our hotel room, we could see Venice, so maybe I don't know how the Italian bus transit system works. maybe maybe they go all the way out and then come back in and this is going to work out in the end, okay Maybe this is how it's working. But we sit there, and then it was about 30 minutes in that I realized, oh boy, I made a bad decision. And that's when we can get on what I would best describe as an Italian highway. And I knew we didn't get on a highway to get there. We definitely were just streets away from there. And we're driving for 10, 15 minutes on this Italian highway, and slowly people are being dropped off until eventually it's just myself, Ashley, and the bus driver. And I, oh boy, I'm I'm wrong. And of course, I'm still holding out some level of faith. Maybe the last stop is right. Maybe, maybe we looked around and took a highway back to the place. And I don't think that's what happened. We ended up being in this isolated, dark, looked like an abandoned village, I don't know, abandoned city on a bus, basically a bus depot. We, we pull up there. We're the only people on the bus. It's dark everywhere. Honestly, it looked like a scene from a horror film. There's like this one street light, us sitting on this bus, and I look at Ashley, and Ashley looks at me, and I look at the bus driver, and the bus driver looks at me, and Ashley looks at the bus driver. We're all looking at each other, and I stand up, and I go, go over to the bus driver. Ashley's with me, and then I realized I made one good decision today. I made one good decision. Before we left the hotel room, I grabbed a card from the hotel. Thank you, Jesus. And I walk up to the bus driver, and he's just looking honestly frustrated, confused. And we begin to speak English, which he has no idea what any of it means. And we have no idea what he's saying because all he's speaking is Italian. And I pull out that card from my wallet, and I hand it to him. And I kid you not, this is his exact reaction. (laughs) And then he begins, am I... No exaggeration. That's exactly what he did. And then he begins to slew off a string of what probably was colorful metaphors for stupid, you idiot, what are you doing? And he frustratingly stands up. He looks at Ashley and I, and he says, I don't know, words I don't understand. Essentially seeming like he's saying stay here, and then I don't know the numbers. Ashley luckily knew the numbers, but in Italian he says four, five, four, five. And she's like, four or five, okay, okay. So we're like, I guess we're just supposed to stay here for 45 minutes? Okay. So Ashley and I go back to our seat. A little bit stressed out. A lot of stressed out. Actually, this is when we started praying. Um, well, I, We really did start praying <laughs> at this point. And thankfully, and maybe it was an answer to our prayers, the, the four or five wasn't 45 minutes. He meant 1045. Remember, we left Venice at 9.30. It's now approaching 10.45. And about 10 minutes later, he comes back into the bus. He starts it. He doesn't say anything to us. You can just tell he's, you're an idiot. Um, He doesn't say anything. He starts the bus, and we begin to trek back, picking up people, dropping off people, picking up people, dropping off people. And we eventually, 45 minutes later, get to that two-mile bridge. It's 11.30 at night. We get to that two-mile bridge we're going across. Oh, well, I guess we're actually not going to you know, be stranded in, in an Italian city that we have no idea how it, anybody talks to us. And we get off the bus, and he's kind enough. I think it is. I might have this wrong. But I'm pretty sure he pointed us to the right bus, or maybe we chose the bus that Ashley knew was right the entire time. I don't really know. We get on the right bus, and within five minutes, we're at our hotel room. It's not good. It's not a good feeling to be lost, has anybody ever been lost? Maybe not in a foreign land where they speak another language. But ha- how have you felt that feeling of being lost? It's like this. In the, it's like a nervousness with no hope attached to it. It's like this is, oh, gosh. And it just feels absolutely horrible. Well, one thing that I really like about Jesus, and truth, I like a lot of things about him. But one thing I really like about Jesus is in the Bible, when he was talking, he told stories. He told parables, and there's a specific chapter in Luke chapter 15 where he talks about lost things, and he relates to some of these feelings that we have, and you're more than welcome to show my title slide if you want. I'm talking about getting lost, but in Luke chapter 15, he gives us three specific parables all on being lost. He tells us about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son, the prodigal son. And I would like to go through with a little bit of patience, hopefully, go through these parables and talk about how they apply to our life today. And I want to also just say, real quick, thank you, Pastor, because two days ago, I had my sermon and I thought it was ready and I started to read it and I was like, oh gosh, this makes no sense. And he pointed me in the right direction and I appreciate that. So you can just, anything good that said, just assume it was him that told me to say it. So. Luke chapter 15, verse 3, it starts, and he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not have the 99 in an open field, and go after the one that is lost, until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One thing about these parables in Luke 15 is I think all three of them, we relate ourselves, our character, who we are, we fit into, into these parables at some point. At every point in our life, we fit somewhere in these parables. And in this one, this one in particular, we've all been at. Thankfully, on a Wednesday night, we're all in church. And in this parable, it's very easy to assume and understand that the shepherd is Jesus. The shepherd is Christ, our Father, who, who, who when we're lost in the world... We all start that way. When we're lost, he not, this is the cool thing about this parable that I learned as I was reading it more. He not only tells us how to get back to him, he not only gives us the Bible and and did that, but he does something much more personable. And in the scripture it says he puts the sheep on his shoulders. He picks up the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and my mind immediately clicked to something else Jesus put on his shoulders. The cross. The cross. He lifted up our sins on his shoulders, and he carried us. He carried our sins. He carried us to a place that we could be planted and solid and not have to worry about those things anymore. So that was the first thing he, he does for us, is he picks us up, and he puts us where we're supposed to be. We've all been there, and I hope we're planted now in a church and we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be. But then it brings us to parable number two. Now, we talked about somebody being lost, but have you ever lost something Anybody who's lost something? I lose money all the time. I give it to my wife and poof. No, I'm just kidding. No, if anything, I'm the spender and she uh, is the the saver. But I am kind of OCD about stuff. I know where my things are. Cell phone, wallet keys, always in the same spot. They go to the same spot on the dresser. They go to the same spot on the wall. Every time they go to the same spot. So when one of those things is missing, my immediate response is, Ashley, what'd you do with my wallet? I don't even assume that I made a mistake. I know for a fact it was her. She moved my wallet and she says, I didn't do anything with your wallet. I don't have it. Yes, you did. And that kind of reminds me, like I said, of the second parable, the parable of the coins. I'll read it. Matthew 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Many commentators, from what I found, liken this parable very similarly to the parable of the sheep. It's God searching. It's a sinner being found. It's something like that. But I want to kind of twist it. Maybe it's my own thought process. Maybe maybe there was more. I don't know. But I would like to liken the woman to us. We know we were all sheep and, and, and we were found. But once we're found we we become complete. We have all ten coins. We're all there. But then we lose something. And maybe, maybe it's something in our heart that we just feel off. And you can't diagnose what the problem is. And you think, well, you know, I haven't missed church lately. I, I'm not reading as much as I used to. I've been frustrated. I... Maybe I don't pray as much. Whatever it is, you start to diagnose what it is. And then the scripture says she does something very in particular. She lights a lamp. She lights a lamp. And in our own lives, we look into scripture and we try to start finding out what's the problem. And we get down on our knees and we start scraping through the dirt and all this muck and all this filth. And we try to figure out so we can get back to what we once had. We can get back that last coin. Revelation says it like that like this, sorry Revelation 2: five remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We have to return to where we were that that sense of wholeness and, and no longer feel empty of what of what God has for us. I think that's oftentimes where we find ourselves as Christians on a very regular basis. You know, we've been saved, we're in church, God's planted us, he picked us up and put us where we belong, but now I struggle, man. I don't feel right. What am I doing wrong? And that's why church is so important. It it helps us bring light on those situations and and try to diagnose, well, what's that 10% I'm missing right now that's going to make me feel good and make me feel that joy that I know I'm supposed to have in my life? But then there's a third parable, the final parable that Christ gives us in in, uh, Luke there. And this one I'm not going to read through entirely because, quite honestly, it's lengthy. Um, But I I think many of us are familiar with the prodigal son. Are we familiar with the story of the prodigal son for the most part? Nobody's hands are up. That's cool. Maybe we should just read it all. Everybody familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Okay. The story. So... Christ tells the story of a father who has two sons. And the youngest son says to his dad one day, Dad, I want my inheritance. And we get the example because it says here that, where am I looking? Hold on. He says, he wants his property divided between them. And then verse 13, it says, not many days later. So we get the idea that this was pretty premeditated. This wasn't just a, hey, Dad, I want my stuff and go. He's thought about this. He even waits a few days to pack up his stuff, get on the road, and go do his own thing. And that's what he does. He packs up his stuff, and he goes. And, and we learn in the story that Jesus tells us that he lived crazy, recklessly. He spent his money. He partied. He did whatever you can imagine that somebody would do in the world going to a city. And then it says he ran out of money. But it doesn't just say he ran out of money. Another thing that uh, key that I noticed in the scripture is that it said a famine came over the the area. So that shows me that this probably wasn't some short period of time either. Famine doesn't just happen. This might be seasons, years later that he's been living like this, and all of a sudden it's run out, and he's in a place where he has no money, and he does what he feels he has to do. He goes and he gets a job. At this point, I mean, he was a young person. He got all of his inheritance from his dad. He had no training. He had no education. He had no skill. He had nothing to contribute. So what's he do? He goes to a field and takes care of pigs. And in this moment, he feels this enlightenment, for lack of better words, where, man, my dad's servants are treated better than this. He thinks, man, maybe I I could go home and be a servant for my dad. At least I can get some meals and have a bed. And like I said, you know the story. So he returns home. And before he even sees his dad, his dad sees him, and he begins to run towards his son. But then there's a third player in this story that that Jesus talks about, and that is of the brother. The brother is a little frustrated well, maybe not, uh, maybe not frustrated. He's definitely confused. He doesn't necessarily like what's going on. And he, he tells his dad, Dad, I have been here. I never left. You're not throwing me any parties. You're not killing a fatted calf or giving me a new ring or doing any of these great things you're doing for my brother. And he's getting frustrated. And the father says to the son, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. The brother was frustrated. But we get an understanding that the father waited for the son to return. Scripture says that he saw him and went to him. So the father, at some point, I'm sure he worked. I'm sure he did what he needed to do. But each day he had to have returned to that spot. Or maybe he woke up and went there. And at the end of the day when it was done, he waited, anticipated his son's return. A couple of weeks ago, Brother Perryman preached on the expectant mother and, and how I don't think the father was just waiting. I think he was expecting his son to come back. But He waited. He expected. He waited patiently for the son to navigate through all that sin. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not showing that any, not wishing that any should perish, but all that should reach repentance. See, God, God doesn't really move. God doesn't really move. He, he waits. He waits for our prompting. The Father didn't move. He's always there for you. And, and the cool thing about God is he's always there for you. He's waiting for you to come back. And maybe I'll get a little off track here, but I think we as a church sometimes get this feeling And assume things. We assume we know why people walk away. We know... Oh, man. She didn't... you see how she's dressing now? Yeah. It must have been too hard for her. You know, she doesn't want to do this anymore. But very, very seldom, I think, is that the reason why people leave the church. The devil... Even back to Adam and Eve, the devil did not tempt Adam and Eve to steal or to lie, to kill, to commit adultery or some sexual morality, to do anything like that. He didn't tempt them in any of those ways that we immediately look and assume that's what the sinner's doing when they leave. Instead, he tempted him to be independent. He tempted them with pride that you don't, you don't really need to do all this stuff. And we we begin to prejudge people. And and it brings me back to the prodigal because there's a totally different ending that could have happened to the prodigal. We see Jesus tell a redemptive story where the son comes back to the father and everything is good. But there's a second way that could have ended. And it's a much less exciting story. Romans 1.28 tells us this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Those are the backsliders who don't repent. And we hear the phrases, you know, a, a reprobate, a person who's, who, who God no longer, uh, that no longer can be saved, that, that, that's given up on. Hebrews 6, 4 says it like this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tested the goodness of the Lord, or have tested the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. It's impossible for them to come back to God. So what's the, what's the dividing line there? I mean, the prodigal made a willing, willing and conscious decision, I'm going to go away. I'm not going to do this anymore. But he came back. Hebrews tells us it's impossible for him to come back. And, and my wrapping around this has always been that it's impossible because the sinner, for lack of better words, the sinner no longer is contrite. They no longer seek repentance. They're not sorrowful for their actions. They have no desire to come back to God. So God, it's not that is it impossible for God to do it. It's impossible because they never come ask God to do it. Because if they did, John 1, or 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. To who? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God's willing. But what's the difference? How, how, what's, what's the gap? Where's, how does one get back and one doesn't? And that's where the crux of what I want to talk about tonight goes. It's when we come in. James five nineteen, my brothers, if anyone among you who wanders from truth and someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's our job. Got a little... Illustration, I guess, and I need help. Um, I need two people. Anthony, you want to help? Anthony is going to be my dirty sinner. <laughs> Only because Andrew's not up here. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, and then I need somebody to represent God, so it's got to be our pastor. So if you don't mind. <clears throat> you see, we work through these these parables. And we see in the first one, Anthony is off living a sinful, horrible life. And we see the father, the shepherd, come. Comes to him. No, you're good. Comes to him, and he picks him up on his shoulders. No. (laughs) He comes, and he picks him up on his shoulders, and he brings him to where he should be, where he needs to be, in the church with the pack, with the fold, with the flock, whatever, I don't know, sheep. He brings them there, puts them where he needs to be. And then we get to that second parable. Anthony's trying to live for God, but he starts unknowingly wandering around. And then all of a sudden he feels one day, man, something is off. Maybe he's in a church service. Something's off. And he then begins to search for that missing thing. And he begins to walk closer to God. And that brings us to the prodigal. And not all of us, I hope not all of us experience this. I'm thankful I've never been a prodigal son. But the prodigal knowingly began to walk away from God. Just keep walking. Knowingly began to walk away from God. And it makes me wonder... Because there's, sto- there's a lot of characters in the story. You can stop, okay? There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of characters in the story of the prodigal son. We know what the father's doing. We know what the prodigal son is doing. We know what the brother's doing. We even know what the servants are doing. But I kind of started to wonder. There's a character in my mind that's missing from this story. And I'm not saying Jesus forgot something. That's not where I'm going. It's me filling in gaps. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But it works, I think. But I wonder, where was the mother? I find it hard to think that the mother sat idly by and just let her son do things. Maybe, maybe it's my modern f- thought of it, but I think she was checking Facebook, seeing how her son was doing. She's getting on the phones. I know he was there the other day. Is he okay? Okay. I think she was keeping tabs, and I think she was, as much as possible, turn the way. I think as much as possible, she might have been trying to pull him back a little bit. Like I said, Brother Perryman preached on the expectant mother, the, the mother that, that's waiting for something to happen. I, I feel like, turn around. You're not looking. <sighs> you don't love Jesus yet, Okay but it spoke on the expectant mother and, and that mother that's waiting and I, I, I think in my mind that's kind of what the prodigal's mother was doing as well and sorry I'm not good enough to have no notes at all I have to come back and look at stuff and it makes me wonder again maybe just maybe she's tugging on him and I, I hope you get the illustration that the mother's the church and he's lost. And they keep tugging on him. And yeah, God's not going to move. God's waiting back there. But he keeps tugging on him and hoping that maybe just maybe he'll turn around. Maybe he'll turn around. And just maybe he'll start to look at God again. And this is what honestly scares me sometimes is that maybe maybe sometimes we get that person to turn around and what they see isn't God. What they see is us, and we're we're acting like that brother. Man, I do you see him? What? Look at him. I mean, I can't believe he did that. God, God can't use him anymore. And they start to see the brother in us. They start to see that frustration and that that contempt that we have because God can't use them anymore. They've fallen away. But maybe, maybe if we love, and when they look at us, they no longer see why they left church in the first place. They no longer see that frustration. Like I said, chances are it wasn't, it wasn't the hard stuff. It wasn't the way we live Chances are it was something deeper. It was some pride, some frustration that was built up in them. They lost that one coin, and they never sought to get it back, and now it's grown. It's seeded in their life, something bigger. And they look back, and hopefully, when they look at the church, they remember the stuff that they loved about the church. They don't see the brother. They see the mother. They see the church that loves them. And they start to pull back. Everybody can stand up. You can meet them. You guys can go back to your seats. Music, you can come. I don't have a whole lot more to do, but I. I had the opportunity last week to to be involved in a ministers' training, for lack of better words, and so much of it, so much of the teaching was talking about souls, and relating to them to the birthing experience. So many ministers go back to that. And we we talk about the Holy Spirit, that when we receive salvation, when we speak in other tongues, that it's a new life and we're great and we're 100%, we got all 10 coins and we're ready to go. But Jesus likens it when talking to Nicodemus. He likens it to being born. And when you're born, you need a lot of help. There's no creature on earth that when it's born, it's self-sustaining and completely and do its own thing. When you're born, you need a lot of help. And that's what the mother's for. The mother's there to, to, to coddle, to make sure that everything is going okay for the, the child. And w- don't get me wrong, when we're, when, we're, when we're reaching out, when we're pulling, we're trying to to talk to that that sinner, to the the backslider, whatever you want to call them. Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers, if any of you if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch of yourself lest you be tempted. A spirit of gentleness. Not 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 just be tactful and gentle about it. But make sure you're doing okay for yourself, too. You're not falling into the sin. And, and I don't think the prodigal's mother, like I said, I'm, illuminating, I'm adding to the story. I don't think the prodigal's mother was sitting in the same bars and doing all the same things, but I think she was reaching out. I think as often as possible, she was checking in, doing what she could do, hoping that one day that the prodigal would return. And hoping that when their son sees a cousin or somebody that they know that's close to the family, that they're not frustrated and talking behind their back and condemning them, but that they're showing them love. I guess what I'm really trying to get at is I have family members, friends, And I know you do too. And I hope when they, they look at us, when they look at me, when, when, when your friend, when your brother, when your sister, when your child looks at me, they see the love of God. I, if I summed it up, I'd say be the outreach that you hope other people are for your children for your lost one. Be that person to everyone else. We like I said we make those assumptions and we assume well they're they're done for. I don't think we know the father doesn't give up on us. He waits for us. But we as the church shouldn't give up either and just said wow, they're lost. No, we need to be coming back. We need to be grabbing. We need to be pulling. We need to sprinkling some, some love, some, some words, something that will hopefully make them just that little bit of turn and come back. And the coolest thing, cool, oh, yeah. talking about God, I'll say it's cool. But the thing I love the most about God in all scriptures, it shows that when you draw nigh to Him, He's going to draw nigh to you, just like that prodigal father that ran to his son. When Anthony was there, as soon as Anthony started walking back towards God, as soon as Anthony started walking back towards God, the Father started walking towards him too, and he's going to meet him there. God doesn't move away when we leave, but he definitely comes close to us when we walk away. Salaginella lapifidelia. I did just speak in tongues. Um... Salaginella lapifidelia. It is a plant. And believe me, I'm going to say it a lot because I didn't learn the word just to say it once in my sermon. Um, I'll probably never use it again. Saligenella Sol- <laughs> lapifidelia. It's a cool plant. It looks like it's dead. And the, the neatest, I'm going to use it cool a lot. The neatest thing about this plant is it can go years without it having any water. It'll shrivel up, and it'll die. Or it'll look like it's dead. But what you don't realize, and I'm not a science person, but what you don't realize is on a a science person, molecular level, inside it, there's something that is storing hope for the future. There's something that's just waiting on, and it can go years without any water. And just a sprinkle of water will make it last several more years but then if you take and you pour water into that it takes a little bit of time, it's not instant it's got to adjust but then it will begin to bloom and it opens up and it becomes the plant that it was supposed to be and I wonder if a lot of times we're not like that as Christians or as sinners that when we walk away We shrivel up and it looks like we're dead but there's a little bit in there there's a little bit in there that's holding on to that hope that man and maybe you don't know it maybe it's unconscious to you maybe maybe you don't even want it to happen but you're still alive somewhere deep inside you and it's just waiting for somebody to sprinkle that little bit of water on you it'll make you survive for a little bit longer and then something will happen and maybe it'll make you turn maybe it'll make you realize maybe that water's poured on you but then again it still takes a minute still takes a while, actually, for that, for that Salajanella lepifidilla to, to get adjusted to it and to start to open up. And I think that's how we are sometimes. We sprinkle out that. And then when it's time for them to finally start turning, we pour that on them. And we wait for them to open up and be that witness, to be that Christian, to be the, the person we know that they deep down had and, and that God does as well. Because it's his desire that all should be saved. It's his desire that all should be saved. There's nobody that he's given up on. There's nobody we should give up on. He loves us so much more. And there's hope. Isaiah thirty-five ten says, and the ransom of the Lord, the ones that were lost, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing ever, with everlasting joy be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing shall flee away. There's hope. But we've got to keep reaching. We have to keep pulling. We've got to keep throwing it out there. And we can't just give up and we can't just assume that person that we see every day. uh, It's they're gone. So I'm actually gonna invite you guys everyone, you guys, that's my go-to statement. I'm gonna invite everybody to come to the front. Because like I said at the beginning, I believe all of us are somewhere in these parables. We're here today, so I'm assuming that Christ has picked you up and planted you where you're supposed to be here, so good job. Maybe we're that Christian that is wrestling with finding what's missing. Maybe we haven't worshiped like we're supposed to worship. Maybe when we come to church, we feel dead. There's only one way that we can get that back, and that's to get on our knees and start searching, to open up the Word, to listen, to pray. Maybe that's where we are. I know, truthfully, I wrestle with that constantly is that feeling of something's off right now and you need to get back to what it is. So if that's you, I encourage you to pray to that end. But maybe you're 100% Christian. You're a great person. You got all 10 coins right now, for lack of better words. And what's missing in your life is that outreach. I think all of us... Myself included, believe me, I'm not preaching. I'm preaching to myself, if anything. I think all of us can work on that outreach, that desire to discipleship, that desire to turn that person to reach out on a daily basis, to make those seemingly uncomfortable conversations happen, even though we don't want to have them, even though this is going to be awkward and I don't want to talk to this person right now, but I'm going to reach out because maybe that's what they need right now. And I want us to pray to that end because it's my desire and it's God's desire that all should be saved. It's God's desire that my brother should be saved. It's God's desire that my mother should be saved. Lord Jesus, help me, Lord God. Help me to be the witness that I want others to be, Lord God.